Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is September 12th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is Say What You Need to Say, But Don't Say Sepsis Screening. And this is an SGEM Extra. We're joined today by Dr. Damian Rowland, who is a consultant at the University of Leicester, NHS Trust, and honorary professor for the University of Leicester's Sapphire Group. He specializes in pediatric emergency medicine and is a passionate believer and advocate of FOMED. Damian is also part of that awesome Don't Forget the Bubbles team. Damian, welcome back to SGMPEDS. Uh, it's fantastic to be back. Thank you so much for having me. So today we are talking about something different compared to the last time you were on where we talked about research, and we're talking about sepsis. Ooh. Now, for anyone who has taken care of a decompensating child with septic shock, I think it's unlikely you've forgotten that experience. And I still vividly remember taking care of my first child in septic shock as a trainee on the floor. And he had initially presented with fever, belly pain, and I remember being called to his room as the senior resident when he started becoming more tachycardic, tired, and then his blood pressure started dropping. Shortly after he was transferred to the intensive care unit, he was intubated and started on pressors, and it all happened so fast. So I have a lot of respect for sepsis and the importance of early recognition to prevent morbidity and mortality. You present a, a case which I think virtually anyone in child health care has experienced at some point, which is the child presenting with an illness who goes from being unwell, poorly, miserable to catastrophically unwell. And you realize what is either a viral infection or maybe a simple, if there is such a thing, bacterial infection, going to where you have this inflammatory overdrive, this sepsis type syndrome, and a child going from one phase of an illness, which is easy to correct, to one which is devastating. And that has been the challenge in pediatric practice. How do we know when children are going to make this transition? What is the diagnosis of sepsis? When you diagnose sepsis, what fluid do you give? Where should you give that fluid? Do you give fluid and some inotropes? Which inotropes do you give? Uh, when's the best time to give those inotropes? When's the best time to give antibiotics? The, the list is absolutely endless in terms of research and quality of improvement strategies in this area. And we've covered the topic of sepsis multiple times on the SGEM, probably too many to list, so we'll put those in the show notes. Now, Damien, you and Dr. Alistair Monroe make a bold claim in your opinion article in the BMJ titled, Time for Pediatrics to Screen Out Sepsis Screening. And I understand that it took a couple years for this piece to get published. Now, do you think that's because it made some people a bit nervous? <laughs> so I, I wish that was the case. It would be it would be a brilliant story to tell to say actually it's taken us three to four years to get this controversial piece out because people didn't like what it said um, or they were against it and we had loads of revisions. That the fact of the matter was is that there was a huge delay with the publishers in being able to just process this piece. Now COVID didn't help at all, and then kind of sepsis went off the agenda. It was a commentary piece, so it didn't really fit the COVID output of the journal we submitted it to. 
But we got there in the end and it has been published. And we hope it is going to make people uh, maybe not a little nervous, but I hope it really gets people thinking, really thinking about the lexicology, like the words they use about sepsis and how they are actually managing sepsis. Well, Damien, you mentioned before, there's so many uncertainties and questions still surrounding this topic. So let's go ahead and just dive in deep with some of these controversies and gray areas with you. So why is sepsis such a challenge for kids in acute and emergency care? What makes it so different from adults? And I think first for me, this comes down to the definition of sepsis. And many of us probably are referring to the surviving sepsis guidelines that were most recently updated in 2020. Yes, we have this paradigm, and especially the authors focus on shock as a part of sepsis, and or maybe shock being a paradigm of severe sepsis. So I think they say we define sepsis shock in children as severe infection leading to cardiovascular dysfunction, which includes hypertension, need for vasoactive medication, or having impaired perfusion. And then there's sepsis-associated organ dysfunction, which is severe infection leading to cardiovascular and or non-cardiovascular organ dysfunction. It's a, a, a pretty big mouthful. But essentially, we're saying sepsis is more due to the body's response to infection than the infection itself. So it is possible that you can have an infection in your bloodstream So the pathogen is just wandering around your bloodstream, but you don't have sepsis because you've not got that cardiovascular dysfunction, the capillary leakage, et cetera. And that is really difficult because lots of children with sepsis can never have a pathogen isolated. Lots of children with a pathogen isolated don't have sepsis. Yeah. And I find this definition to be lacking in the sense that I think it helps me recognize a very sick child with sepsis, but I don't really need that much help recognizing that kid, right? A a terribly sick kid is a terribly sick kid, but I I need to know, like, who's potentially septic? Where's that gray area? And one of the interesting things around this is I think people would like to use, but but clearly don't, the concept of (laughs) pre-sepsis. So what I mean by like is, as you've just said, If you are moribund with clearly an infection and you've got gross hyperperfusion, that is obvious. But before that, you go through a transition of being maybe a bit miserable, having a bit of a fever. A lot of these sepsis conditions start with a viral illness, which then allows kind of bacteria to cause the body to go into hyperdrive. So there's this spectrum that you go through. And I think It's really difficult because what we don't know is what is that trigger point of when someone is in a pre-sepsis phase about when they need treatment or if they don't and what's going to happen next. And so it's difficult because actually even experts, I suspect, disagree on what phase of a particular illness allows for reversibility of a a sepsis syndrome. Wait a minute. Are you telling us that we should be skeptical about these expert panel consensus? Oh, so yeah. So it's difficult because I have made no bones about some of my concerns with the National Institute for Clinical Excellence guidance on sepsis. I think that they have collated the evidence. 
They have looked at what children with the most extreme forms of physiological derangement have and proposed a methodology whereby if a child presents and they have risk of infection and they are very tachycardic or very tachypneic, they should be considered as having red flag sepsis and someone needs to review that person who has expertise in pediatric practice, make a decision to treat with antibiotics and admit and manage accordingly. And what we've not done is looked at how common that physiological derangement with fever is. And I am afraid what we find now is we know that the evidence suggests lots of children are tachycardic and febrile and that this stat sepsis screening approach just just doesn't work. That totally makes sense and is a perfect tie-in to our next point, which we're going to talk a little bit about sepsis recognition and treatment. So we kind of emphasized earlier that recognizing these children that are in the pre-sepsis or in the middle of that sepsis spectrum is very challenging. And one of your areas of research is around scoring systems for identifying acutely ill children. Now, specifically, I'm talking about the Pediatric Observation Priority Score, or POPs, which is taking into account vital signs, respiratory status, mental status, etc. And we also covered a paper that you were an author on with Dr. Vicki Curry on the SGM, looking at pediatric vital sign ranges and comparing them to APLS and NICE guidelines. Now, at my institution, it's our electronic health record that triggers a sepsis warning based on abnormal vital signs. But is that how it works everywhere, or is there some variability there? So there is variability in whether you've got kind of a digital EHR or paper-based system and what those vital signs are or what the scoring system tools that you use are. But actually, the principle of you present and you've got deranged physiology and the screening tool picks up that deranged physiology in combination with a fever or infection risk and tells you, actually, could this child have sepsis? I think that principle is the same. There is lots of variability in how it's applied. Um, the problem is, is that there's, of any of those approaches where you use physiology, there's extremely poor sensitivity and specificity. There's loads of false positives. We know lots of children, you can be very tachycardic with a fever and have a simple self-limiting viral illness. And there probably are some false negatives. We know some children eventually develop a sepsis syndrome and may not have even mounted a temperature response. So there's no holy grail. We keep searching for this mythical uh, screening tool that we can use. No one's found it in years of research, and I don't think we ever will. I want to ask you some questions about the labs and the testing for sepsis, because sometimes I I get this from families who might not fully understand, right? They want like, they want that test that will diagnose sepsis, which it doesn't exist. So we use a lot of these proxy markers instead. So in kids, let's just rapid fire this. Tell me what you think about the utility of some of these things. So lactate. Yeah, so I, I'm not a fan of, of lactate in isolation, mainly because when your lactate's high, and I think there probably is, unfortunately, some debate about what a high lactate is. And this is probably because we often do a capillary blood gas, and then you don't know the effect of, of squeezing, etc. But let's say a lactate of above four. If you've got a child that you're really worried about, and their lactate's already above four, and they're looking unwell, 
you're already down that cascade where there's there's likely to be some hype of high fusion. So that that's a bit bit late. The flip side of it is if you've got kind of lactate of around two, two and a half, some books would say that that's a bit raised. I think we see those numbers quite commonly in our emergency department for lots of different types of conditions. So I, I worry about lactate as an input tool. I think it really clearly is useful for response to treatment. And when you're ICU and when you're looking at kind of reducing lactate and you're improving perfusion to wash your vascular system out. But I'm not the best fan of lactate, if I'm honest. You know, it's not me if I don't bring in some kind of reference maybe to febrile infants. But what about inflammatory markers, CRP, ESR, procalcitonin? So the big issue here is is not necessarily the test, but is when do you choose to do them? Because people plow these, oh, well, you should have done inflammatory markers. But we can't do an inflammatory marker on every child who presents to the emergency department. So we've almost got screening tests within screening tests. What is the test for deciding to do the blood test? And then what is the value of that particular inflammatory marker that leads you to get to whether someone's got sepsis or not? And so there's this double whammy, which makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, It's interesting in the UK, there aren't many sites that do procalcitonin. My understanding is it's much more widely used in the the US and Europe. And I, I know it's now fundamentally a part of the febrile neonates guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. CRP itself is really difficult. Yeah, if it's kind of 300 plus, you know something's going on. What do you do when it's 42? And that's the challenge. I like that you picked 42 because that is the answer. (laughs) But in the United States, I mean, I will say that, yes, my institution has procalcitonin, and I'm sure some bigger institutions do as well. But even within the United States, there's some places where it's a send out or they can't get that procalcitonin result in a timely fashion. So that definitely limits its utility as well. All right. For this next one, I, I have a bias towards this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Viral PCR testing. So what are you using this for? Is, is this to kind of decide, oh, if they've got a positive viral PCR, then you've ruled out sepsis and the kid could go home? I mean, that sounds inherently dangerous to me, if I'm honest. We know multitude of papers that you can have a respiratory virus in combination with a more severe pathogen. I think that particular approach to care, if that's what's being suggested, is taking away from clinical acumen. You need to be deciding why you think this child has a condition which is developing organ dysfunction and shock. And the the, the viral pathogen part of that doesn't make much sense to me. Now, as part of a screen for children coming into hospital who are being admitted and you're trying to work out what's going on with them and you want to package it up so you can make a firm diagnosis, yeah, yeah, probably important for public health screening. But as a a rule-in, rule-out tool within the emergency department, uh, that's not my flavor of the month. You and I are definitely on the same page with this. I think most of the time, this does not really change our management. Even if the child tests positive, there's very few viruses we have any treatments for. And I think it does, like you said, provide a false reassurance if that's what we're going to hang our hat on and say, oh, this is the reason why you are so febrile and tachycardic, which might not be true. The other thing I would add is what is clearly going to change over time is not looking at the virus, but looking at the genomic response of an individual's body. And I think that is the change that is coming. I have been watching with interest at conferences for years and years 
where we're showing kind of proteomic genomic responses. And that, I hope, is the future, that we can do some tests which tell us actually the body is responding in this way to this particular type of organism, and actually you need to act. But for this particular patient, you don't. So speaking of the body's response, this last part is the height of the fever. So I've heard both parents and clinicians kind of state that, well, obviously, if the height of the fever is super high, the higher the fever, then it's clear that you have a potentially more serious infection. What do you think about that? This is really difficult. This is like the application of evidence and then it's misinterpretation. So my understanding is if you take a thousand children, if you take another thousand children and one group has a temperature of, let's say, 38.5 degrees and the other thousand have 40.5 degrees, in the 40.5 degree group, you will have perhaps two to three more children who have a serious bacterial illness than the 38.5 degree group. So there's a, a population effect that the higher the temperature, that you have a few more cases. But on the individual basis, it makes no difference. These numbers are so small over the range that you can't look at an individual patient and go, well, actually, that patient's got this temperature, so we need to do this. And that this other patient's got this temperature, and we need to do that. And then the other way I look at it, and there's a brilliant slide by Professor Rick Boddy, Professor of Emergency Medicine, University of Manchester, showing this kind of when something goes from negative to positive. So you imagine a black line kind of sloping up. And then the area under the curve being green at one point and then going into red. When does something become positive? And if we look at temperature, we have this weird thing that if you are 37.9 degrees, technically you're under 38. And there's guidance in the UK that would say, well, actually, we don't need to investigate that as having a fever. Whereas if you're 38.1, we would do. Now, it's meaningless to the bacterium that 0.2 of a degree difference is the thing that's made sepsis or not. And even a thermometer, its calibration is usually plus or minus 0.3. So you don't even know if it's that accurate. So I really struggle with height of fever being meaningful in clinical interpretation of sepsis or indeed kind of any infective illness. All right. Can we move on and talk a little bit about the treatments for sepsis? And we'll do kind of the same thing. So first is fluids. There's a lot of debate here. Which type? How much? How soon? So this is more difficult. When it comes to actual management, we know there are some big groundbreaking papers looking at how much fluid you give and what fluid you give. And I'm a bit more uncertain because I don't know which way things are going. Clearly, there is a worry that if you overload a child who already has significant capillary leakage with fluids, you may make things worse. And the feast study, groundbreaking study in Africa, showing that it looked like extra fluid was doing some of these patients' harm has, has really impacted on practice around the world. Interestingly, in the UK, when we tried to replicate the feast study, so we were trying to find patients, we couldn't recruit enough patients as part of a clinical trial to do a randomized control trial that would give us an answer. And that's interesting. That tells us a lot about the incidence of severe sepsis. People are starting inotropes earlier than they used to, particularly on ICU, and having that access and, and being willing to go early as soon as you suspect that sepsis cascade to have begun 
is important. What is interesting, though, in, in the latest guidance, suggesting that people were really obsessed with you had to get the antibiotics within an hour because that was going to make the critical difference. And clearly for the child who is, is moribund, you want antibiotics in as quickly as possible. For these cases where maybe there's a bit of physiological derangement, but no organ dysfunction, you probably have longer. And I think people are suggesting up to three hours now to give antibiotics. And I think that gives you a bit of time to make a rational decision. It will stop us over-treating. It will be much better for adopting good antimicrobial uh, chemotherapy techniques. And so I think we've, we've still got a lot to learn. We've still got more studies to do. But in essence, we need to be considering the amount of fluid we're given. We want to be starting inotropes early where they're needed. Antibiotics, clearly in the moribund child, you give them hard and fast. But perhaps we don't need to rush in in the child where there's equipoise. This is crazy to me in the sense that you've been practicing and researching many, many more years in comparison to myself. And all of this around fluids, inotropes, antibiotics for sepsis, it seems like it's still a moving target. So if you're uncertain, then I guess I'm even more uncertain. It's a difficult area. And I do have great sympathy. We've had a lot of tragedy with pediatric sepsis. We've had preventable deaths. Um, and I think part of that is because we've not got the evidence bases that we should have. And I think we've applied some principles at scales, which I don't think have been helpful for clinician decision making. So speaking of evidence, let's talk a little bit about the existing evidence, the guidelines and some of the controversies. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and International Guidance is one of the most well-known set of guidelines for sepsis. But after they were released, a group of doctors actually expressed some concerns because there were conflicts of interest for the people involved and working with pharmaceutical companies. They also made strong recommendations based on weak evidence, so much so that the Infectious Disease Society of America did not endorse the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines due to different interpretation of the major studies that led to some of the recommendations. There's also some criticism regarding the bundling of care that does not consider clinical judgment. So as Ken would say, they are guidelines, not godlines. Now we're going to talk a little bit about two studies in particular. First off was a study published by Nyman et al. in 2019, and this was a prospective observational study at a single pediatric ED with febrile children one month to 16 years who had at least one warning sign of sepsis. They included over 1,500 patients, and 34 to 57% had met those vital sign criteria based on heart rate or respiratory rate by APLS or NICE guidelines. But really, only 0.4% or six children had invasive bacterial infection, and there was one death. So this study further reinforces how may be sensitive, but not specific, our guidelines are. Damien, do you want to talk about a study that you were involved in? So I worked with Sylvester Gomez, and we did a similar thing to what Rud Nishman had done, but we were based on a, an electronic screening tool that basically picked up some of the presenting characteristics of patients, such as their physiology, and comparing the electric screening tool 
with clinical assessment alone. Now, the big ticket item from this paper is that we had kind of nearly 20,000 children screened. 90 children were given a sepsis diagnosis. And of those 90, only 19 had a positive blood culture and a load work contaminants. So the overall prevalence of sepsis in this single center emergency department study was 0.45%. Very different from previous literature, but in keeping with the 0.4% that Rud Nijman had done in a similar study from an emergency department a year earlier. Now, I think that this low incidence on the basis of children who are undifferentiated with a large variability of physiology concords with most clinicians' anecdotes, whichever country you're in. And I think you are then forced to draw the conclusion that clearly sepsis is a devastating disease, but it is not ubiquitous. It is relatively rare. We shouldn't underplay sepsis. But there are lots of other conditions that cause serious harm to children that we aren't promoting or we aren't screening for or we aren't getting vexated about, uh, such as asthma in in children, um, as we should be doing. And I think it's really important that guideline developers understand this. You have to look at the evidence, but you also have to look at where that evidence is derived from. And really importantly for me, you have to check the impact of your guidance. And what no one, I think, has done is gone, okay, we've got these guidelines. What happens if we put them into practice? Because if you put these tools into practice, you find that they're horrendously uh, poorly specific. And because they're poorly specific, people don't trust them. And because people don't trust them, they don't use them correctly. And then that is when harm occurs. For this next point, I want to transition into the opinion article that you wrote. So why is sepsis screening incorrect lexicology? So there's two parts to this. Now, be interesting, Dennis, about whether some of this lexicology even exists outside of the the UK. But what did occur was if you needed to do a bundle of tests on a patient. So, for example, a six-week-old presents, they've got a high fever, they look a bit unwell, you are going to do a battery of tests. You're going to do a blood culture. You're going to set some urine, a lumbar puncture, test inflammatory markers. And that became known as a sepsis screen. You're doing a bundle of tests together. Now, it wasn't really screening. It was just describing the bundle of tests that you did. And then what happened is when we had guidance come in that started suggesting, okay, If the child has this parameters, then do this. The test became known as a sepsis screen so that you're evaluating children with a risk of sepsis based on their presenting characteristics and they're undergoing a sepsis screen. And our kickback is really about screening has a defined set of principles. You need to know the denominator of the condition you're treating. The test has to be acceptable. The test has to have good characteristics. It must clearly identify the disease. And when we're talking about sepsis screening as applied to some of these guidelines, none of these things are true. We don't have a unified definition of what sepsis is. We know the tests are really poorly specific. And we're not convinced that doing some of these tests is actually in either the clinician's or the child or young person's best interest. So sepsis screening as a concept is just flawed. 
So we've talked a lot about the uncertainty around sepsis, the evolving evidence. And now comes the question. We are entering the winter season, and we are for sure going to be seeing children with fevers, tachycardia. So if I'm not going to screen for sepsis, what should I be doing? And where are we going to go with this? Okay, they're really good questions. And it's really easy in commentary editorial pieces to go, ah, here's a problem, and then never give a solution. And I think there are two phases to what needs to happen. The longer phase is we do need to look at the conditions in which decisions are made. And I do reviews of untoward events. And what you find is, is there's often common themes, especially when sepsis is missed, about these decisions being made in very crowded wards or emergency departments with staff under pressure, with a huge amount of patients to see, making reflexive decisions. And I think we're always going to struggle with this problem of dealing with sepsis if we have completely overwhelmed healthcare systems. It isn't going to be screening tools that make the problem better. We need to find healthcare systems that allow even the most senior clinicians the time to adequately assess children and make the best decision for the child in front of them. But I don't see that pressure being relieved anytime soon. So what will I be doing this particular winter? Well, I, I will be trying to think about the trajectory of illness in combination with parental concern and the judicious use of investigations where I think those investigations are going to change what my gut feeling is going to be. And I, I always talk about gut feeling being when you're making a decision against the evidence in front of you. So if you have a child who is really tachycardic, has a high respiratory rate, is very hot, has very mottled peripheral ease, has a central capillary time of five seconds, is lethargic, hasn't urinated in 12 hours, that gut feeling you isn't telling you that that child's really ill. Clinical features are. And if you choose not to do anything about that child, well, kind of, uh, <laughs> so be it. But I think you're taking a risk. Where If you've got the child in front of you who is, is febrile, is uh, a bit tachycardic, uh, but is demonstrating some interactivity, and after discussion with the parents, yes, they're concerned, but is this the most unwell they've ever seen them? Are they responding at least to antipyretic. Now, I think, I can't remember if we've talked before, Dennis, I think we have about there is no evidence that response to antipyretic actually determines your risk of having a disease. But these are features of illness which parents can use to help you understand how unwell their child is. So I'm using that parental concern. I'm looking at the child in front of me and some of their trajectory to make a decision about whether, well, okay, if I choose to investigate this child, Will a CRP make a difference? What would I do if the CRP was over 100? Would that believe me to treat? If the CRP was less than 10 in this child, would that enable me to discharge? And that's the type of process I'm going through. It's really easy to say that, but if you're in a department that's got 80 children, your wait to be seen is, is hours, and you've got another six or seven children waiting on ambulances that you need to assess. This is all much easier to say than to actually deliver. Damien, everything that you just said, it actually sounds like you have hit every single pillar of evidence-based medicine. You brought in the scientific literature, 
your own clinical judgment and experience, and the patient and family's preferences. Okay, Damien, so I, I don't know specifically how it works in your hospital, but for me, our electronic health record triggers a sepsis alert. Oftentimes, this is after our nurses perform their vital signs in triage, and that usually triggers a call to me with a request to, hey, can you come see this patient and see whether or not they might be septic? And so that in the crazy busy emergency department with the volumes that we're seeing is fairly disruptive. It disrupts us from our workflow, but also it disrupts us from the thought process that we were having. So is there any data out there that would suggest that maybe we don't need a senior clinician to be actually making these assessments that one of our other patient care team members, like the triage nurse, can make the decision and be just as accurate? That's a really good question. Sylvester Gomez's paper was trying to look at whether you can use some modified criteria to identify to clinicians who the best patients to see are. But you're still then reliant on a group of, of numbers. And I think the challenge that we've got into is, is where do you draw that line of risk? This is where I think we need more honest conversations with the public, because what you're identifying there, I think, is, OK, you're being called to make too many reviews on patients who you quickly glance and go, no, they're OK. So if you raise that bar, the advantage of doing that is that your cognitive load is decreased. That may, helps you make better decisions, will identify the better patients to see and you're likely to have a better outcome for the patients you've got to. But by raising that bar, you might have a different experienced person going who might not have your experience or aptitude. And if you're going to do that, you need to be really sure that you understand the risk. And as I think we've been through this, because we're not able to define yet what sepsis really is, I think in the studies we've got that the risk of sepsis, if we define that as you've been in hospital for a couple of days, you've received at least 48 hours, if not more of antibiotics, you, you may have grown some culture. Someone's thought you've been unwell enough to write, actually, this was definitely sepsis in the notes, is actually surprisingly rare. And so what is that trade-off? Are you willing to trade off some of your time for potentially missing one of these rare cases? Or do you still need to gather your armamentorium of, of staff? Because I think if you try and have a different grouping of, of staffing who don't really, and I'm, I'm not being derogatory here, but I think you have to have a lot of experience of trajectory of illness and understanding parental concern across a wide variety of cultures to be able to make some of these difficult decisions, which is based on the child in front of you. And so my gut feeling answer to you is, is no at the moment. I don't think there is. The evidence-based answer is, as I'm not certain, maybe someone listening to this will start chucking us some papers which show it could be done. But for the moment, I think we're in a difficult area. Well, Damien, thank you so much for joining us on SGMPEDS, talking over all these pearls about sepsis, why we shouldn't be saying sepsis screening, and acknowledging all of the uncertainty and the research still to be done in this topic. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's always lovely to speak to you. And it just gets me thinking again about my own topic, being skeptical of it, and perhaps going away and doing some more research in this area. 
Fantastic. I have the same reaction as well. So it's perfect that we're kind of building off of one another and we're coming out of this conversation more skeptical and more curious. Now, the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence. Now, before we go, Damien, do you mind giving us the SGM tagline? Of course. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.